Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Our topic today is acute care surgery, and our guest is Dr. Louis J. Kaplan, MD, FCCM. Dr. Kaplan is currently an associate professor of surgery at the Yale University School of Medicine, and I am extremely grateful to have him here today. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaplan, for being here. Thank you. Um, as you and I were just discussing, um, uh, and most of the listeners know, I work in a surgical ICU, and we recently, at my current place of employment, started having acute care surgeons join us, and uh, I was more than slightly confused as to what their particular role was going to be in the hospital, and, and having just spent the last seven years working in a department of surgery where lots and lots of sick patients would get admitted in the middle of the night, would need to have emergency surgery, there would be the surgeon on call, and that surgeon would come in and work with the resident, do the surgery, the patient would get admitted to the ICU, I would work with the surgeon and help care for the patient. And so when I first heard about this, I was a little confused about what what they were and what their relationship was to surgical critical care, and uh, I thought I'd let you talk about it. Great. Uh, you're not the only one that's confused. In fact, acute care surgery has its roots in things that have always occurred within the surgical world. And perhaps in order to understand the role of the acute care surgeon, it's best to understand where that person started and what has driven the development of acute care surgery as a separate designation and a separate specialty. In order to do that, we need to wind the clock back about 40 years. And when we do that, it was a time that was ripe for change. Critical care as a separate discipline really came to the front through the efforts of Peter Safar, Peter Winter, and Aki Grenvik at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Which is where you trained. I did train there. At the same time, we started to develop trauma systems, and this flourished in the early 70s. Trauma became its own specialty and was no longer just considered to be part of general surgery. This took hold in the academic centers and born was the coupling of trauma and surgical critical care. The interesting piece about this growth is that the, the individuals who practiced trauma and surgical critical care were absolutely overwhelmed with patients. And a lot of the surgical care was done in the operating room. A lot of the diagnostics were done in the ED and then continued in the operating room. Remember, the early 70s, just saw the introduction of CAT scanning in 1972. Ultrasound was not widespread. Diagnostic peritoneal lavage and the concept of, I think there's something wrong, I'll go look, dominated the field. So the surgeons were operating. They were happy. They took care of critically ill and injured patients, and they took care of them in the ICU, and they managed them through convalescence. But they didn't do a lot of general surgery. So in the university centers that had these developing trauma centers, the trauma surgeon became a trauma and critical care surgeon, but not a general surgeon. No longer was that person doing the, the wide spectrum of operations that a typical general surgeon would do. And that, just, just for the listeners who may have an interest but are not actually surgeons, 
the formal critical care, the, I'm sorry, the formal board certification is in critical care, and it's my understanding that the types of procedures that a trauma surgeon will be doing, a general trauma surgeon, they are things that they are taught during their residency. They should technically be able to do it, or do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Like, maybe what are the different techniques that a trauma surgeon might be better at than someone who wasn't, didn't go and do an extra fellowship in trauma surgery? We can talk about that. And it's an, an important piece in terms of the development of acute care surgery. I was just saying because you were discussing that, that they were no longer becoming general surgeons as they were becoming specialized. I'm sorry. That was just a question. That I the, the operative techniques really are not terribly different. The timing of the application of those techniques and the use of uh, damage control surgery and not finishing the operation the same day because of uh, near exsanguination and uh, critically ill physiology, that was readily integrated into trauma surgery. But that trauma surgeon knows how to do a cholecystectomy. Okay. But in these university centers, they weren't doing elective cholecystectomies and elective hernia repairs, and they weren't taking care of colon cancer and the procedures required to manage that. Okay. They were focused on trauma and critical care. The, the board certification, and this persists till today, is only in surgical critical care. There is no board for trauma surgery. So as these trauma systems developed, we had two different tiers of trauma centers, one in the university setting and the other in the community. And in the community, the general surgeon was a surgeon who also happened to do trauma, often did not do critical care. That was uh, and is still done today by anesthesia critical care providers, medical critical care providers, pulmonary critical care providers, but not often done by the surgeon. So we ha now have two different practice paradigms. This became even more sharply divided with the introduction of interventional radiology techniques, uh, emerging evidence of the success of non-operative management, uh, new diagnostic techniques that are widely applied, such as ultrasound and CAT scanning. So the trauma surgery became very much non-operative. As that happened, so, so just to reiterate, the, it was the advance in imaging techniques that was one of the major forces that led to the decreased incidence of surgery, uh, of operations in trauma patients? Or, or, or what were some of the key factors that led to that happening? You mentioned imaging. Is that one of the major ones? Imaging is a key one because if you could identify that there was a problem without opening up the patient's abdomen or chest or in some cases brain, and you had an interventional person who could address it, it put you out of a job. You right. didn't the surgeon need was the attending open. of record, but that was it. Right? Exactly. So you spent a lot of time looking after that patient, but the procedural aspects of that patient's care were often not yours. Orthopedics, neurosurgery, uh, interventional radiology, they did lots of cases. But the trauma surgeon started to not operate a whole lot. And it would not be uncommon to have a trauma director do less than 50 trauma cases in a year. Uh, not a very satisfying diet for someone that's a surgeon. Of course, this didn't really occur out in the community so much because they were just always general surgeons that happened to do trauma. So what happened? What drove the development of acute care surgery out of this morass of some who operate a lot and some who didn't operate very much at all. The fact of the matter is that since trauma and surgical critical care are intimately linked, when you look at the uh, 
success of surgical critical care fellowships at garnering applicants, it's actually quite poor. Less than 50% of those spots fill through the match each year, and the number of graduates from surgical residencies that are going to select a career in trauma continues to decline. And, 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 and it's been my experience that almost, I, I thought it's heading towards almost everybody who finishes a general surgery fellowship does some sort of, general surgery residency heads towards fellowship now. And I, this is one of the other topics that you and I might talk about is, again, p- picking apart what is left for the general surgeon to do since there is becoming surgical oncology and, and that kind of thing. Sorry, go ahead. Well, you're right. Fellowship uh, subspecialization is uh, more the norm than the exception, be it breast, colorectal, vascular, or in particular, minimally invasive, uh, it's hard to attract people to do surgical critical care, which is part and parcel of doing trauma at big institutions, because of the non-operative nature of doing trauma. On the other hand, what might make this much more attractive is reintegrating general surgery, which has always been done in the community, back into the university surgeon's purview. Well, that's an interesting prospect because at the same time that this concept was born, let's reintegrate general surgery, the Institute of Medicine's report in terms of the healthcare crisis with access to emergency care came out. Broad and sweeping quality deficits throughout multiple emergency departments, especially in rural settings, uh, came to the fore. How does one compensate for those quality deficits? How does one address the fact that it's difficult to find a neurosurgeon in the rural setting or an orthopedic surgeon for every uh, level two trauma center that exists in places that are outside of the urban environment? So anyway, you were pointing out how there were some issues of integrating both in the university setting, there were gaps, and in the rural setting, there were gaps, and potentially this could be filled by the concept of an acute care surgeon. Go ahead. So the acute care surgeon wouldn't just be a trauma surgeon who does critical care and general surgery, but was thought to be able to fill the gap with simple orthopedic care, uh, straightforward neurosurgical management, including uh, burr holes for decompression, placement of uh, intracranial pressure monitoring devices, as well as uh, some advanced vascular operative management and perhaps interventional vascular management. This was the original concept. Not all of this has come to fruition. In fact, there's been tremendous pushback from orthopedics, neurosurgery, and now also from vascular in terms of how one could adequately train an acute care surgeon with a limited period of time to be competent in doing any of those procedures. So what what is the current status of of acute care surgery fellowships? Are they now what uh, surgical critical care fellowships are expanding to be surgical critical care and acute care surgery? And what would your vision be if you had a brand new either a brand new community hospital or a brand new university hospital, how you would organize that and have acute care surgeons play a, play a role? I'll start with the first part of that. What's the current status? There are, in fact, acute care surgery fellowships that have been proposed, vetted, and approved by the American Association for the Surgery of Traumas Committee specifically on acute care surgery. These fellowships are up and running. And in most places that are uh, trying to have that kind of a fellowship start, 
they are morphing their surgical critical care fellowship into an acute care surgery fellowship, so going from one year to two years. There are other places that maintain parallel tracks. They have an acute care surgery fellowship and a one-year surgical critical care fellowship. So there's a, a bit of a mix of opportunities that are available. What would I do with a new hospital? It really depends upon the setting and it depends upon the resources that one can bring to bear. In order to, to really uh, put an acute care surgery program into place, that means that there's going to be a trauma service, an emergency general surgery service, a critical care service, and you need people to staff each of them all at once, fill your call schedule, have non-physician providers to help provide support and continuity, especially if there's not a, uh, uh, an ample cadre of residents and fellows to act as uh, the arms of the service. So now you need someone else to help with that. And you need a small army of data collectors so you can figure out what it is you're doing, how well it's happening, and where you need to do things better. This absolutely requires institutional support and support from the chairman or chief of surgery right on down. How do you, um, and again, as you've pointed out, maybe we'll just backtrack a little bit, but the acute care surgeon, uh, and you were heading in this direction with the story, so therefore the acute care surgeon was developed, and the concept is they are a presence 24-7 to help intervene acutely on a patient who has an acute surgical issue, or if you'd like to take it from there. Well, well I think you have the right of it. They are, in fact, present to handle the person that comes in with uh, acute injury or severe illness, manage them operatively or non-operatively on the floor, in the ICU, uh, whether they go from the ED to the OR to the ICU, out to the floor, and then in follow-up, it is one tidy package that is designed to streamline care. The, the problem with all of this is that you now need to have the surgeon in-house, and if you're at a busy center and that person is operating most of the night on these acutely ill patients, Who's managing the patient in the ICU? Do you need a second in-house physician uh, who can be of uh, a number of uh, flavors? Perhaps they're not a surgeon that's, that's parked in the ICU, but maybe they are. And so or integrating with the critical care services that may already exist. That kind uh, of exactly. Once you do this, you now have the unforeseen issue of the patients who survive through convalescence who need additional procedures are now coming back for elective procedures. And of course, if you take care of someone's uh, acute cholecystitis, that primary care doctor may send you the next one that just has gallbladder disease and needs an elective cholecystectomy. We haven't really considered how to integrate that into the acute care surgeon's armamentarium either. So let me ask you a couple a couple questions because you and I both work at pretty big academic medical centers. One is um, I've seen the term surgical hospitalist thrown a lot, around a little bit. Do you use that term, and is that a gr same thing as an acute care surgeon? Oh gosh, no. Uh, in fact, the American Board of Surgery has taken a somewhat dim view of the term surgical hospitalist because it really implies a shift worker mentality, implies um, itinerancy, and a lack of ownership. And, and all those are antithetical to what is espoused by the American Board of Surgery and the, the principles of ethics in terms of uh, the contract that the surgeon has with the patient. So that term is, uh, it appears in some publications, but is not one that is viewed with a lot of favor. And then um, so politically, this is obviously, 
I would imagine in some large centers it would be tricky because somebody is already or some group of people are already caring for these patients. If it's a group of people who, who say, you know, we're already too busy and we can't even handle the new admissions that we get or people that come in who don't have a surgeon, but aren't you muscling in on some people who may be already using this as their, as their livelihood? Or, or what are some of the challenges that, as this is growing? Uh, the question is excellent, and it is germane. If you look in the university setting, what the acute care surgeon tends to do are cases that are generally unwanted. There are emergency cases. It's pus, things that are dead, things with holes in them, um, necrotizing soft tissue infections. These are the things that require a lot of time and often don't have a lot of uh, remuneration. Uh, the un- and underinsured patient population is uh, highly represented in the acute care surgeon's patient load, but not everywhere. But you do these things often when there's uh, no waiting time for the OR, generally after 6 at night and before 6 a.m. And it's, it's difficult to get other surgeons to come in to do those kinds of cases. In particular, when that patient is at an outlying hospital initially, and it's hard to find a general surgeon willing to take call that evening. So these patients are readily referred in. Uh, if you are a high-end, super-specialized surgeon at a university setting, the last thing that you want to do is uh, some emergency general surgery case in advance of your four minimally invasive parathyroids that you're doing the next day. So the acute care surgeon fills that I'd actually gap. heard that from a couple of my other surgeons, exactly, that they, they've got these two big, planned, large cases for the next day, and yet they've been up all night because they were emergently on call that night before, something like that, right? Exactly. The acute care surgeon does take care of that for the rest of the uh, more or less elective surgeons. If you look in the community setting, yes, you're muscling in on someone's property. There is someone who's taking care of that. Someone always has to take care of that. The difficulty is that if you are an acute care surgeon with this critical care skill set that you may not, in fact, be using, and you bring or you keep the seriously ill patient because you know how to do that operation, you want to do that operation, that person's needs may outstrip the available resources in your hospital's ICU. So even if you want to do it, you may not really be able to do it. Because of the follow-up issues and, and the post-operative care, care or the, the requirements for post-operative care may not be there, even though you may be able to tackle the actual operative procedure? Absolutely. And the time commitment, if you are in the community, you're not a university-salaried person, where, to borrow a phrase, you eat what you kill, uh, and CMS is not going to perhaps pay for complication management, right. uh, this is a losing proposition in that setting. And it's hard to say. On the other hand, though, you, I would imagine if you had somebody like that who could do the initial life-saving surgery, stabilize the patient, and then get them transferred to a larger center, I would imagine in other parts of the country, that's probably a good thing for the patient uh, rather than having them languish somewhere and maybe not be able to get that initial surgery because we both know those initial few minutes and hours in critical care are, are key. Indeed, and that's a lot of what we see as well, someone that had a stabilizing operation who now needs to be packaged and transferred. 
So I had some other follow-up questions. I, I hope these are these are sort of the uh, the big picture from your perspective. Is so where then have you seen buy-in for this, and and where have you not? Uh, and and where do you sort of see this going in the next couple of years, since we're still very early on? Buy-in occurs in places where acute care surgery will make many different surgeons and hospitals happy. So the big university centers that are more or less resourced to do that, uh, lots of buy-in. It frees up the, the elective surgeons. It provides a general surgical exposure for those who are doing trauma and critical care. Uh, it's been well documented. You can do more cases and you can see more patients. And the number of people you see in order to do an operation is actually fewer than it was before. And this is great and supports your revenue stream. Oh, that, that, that the likelihood that, re, that you're being called as a surgeon with somebody that needs to go to the OR, you mean? Yes, it actually, it actually goes up. Okay. However, as you do this, you have to look back at the original question. What is acute care surgery designed to fix? And the original design was to fix gaps in quality, not necessarily to make the trauma surgeon happier, and not necessarily to salvage the specialty by reincarnating it. Because if what you're doing are um, perirectal abscesses and gallbladder disease and hernias and dead colons and perforated colons, but you're not doing pancreatic work and you're not doing hepatobiliary work and you don't see esophageal surgery anymore and you're not doing liver resections electively, that may not be very attractive to the trainee who's now just finished five or six or seven years where they just did that to say, uh, let me give that up and spend two more years in fellowship doing uh, these kinds of cases plus lots of months of surgical critical care. And what's worse is that quite commonly, um, if you do trauma and emergency general surgery and critical care and elective surgery, you view surgical critical care as a well-established separate specialty. The people who put their patients into the ICU for whom you also provide care, the high-end colorectal surgeon, the vascular surgeon, mm -hmm. they will not think twice quite often about telling you when it's time to extubate their patient, how much fluid they're supposed to have, how to feed them, which antibiotics they want, and for how long but would be mortally offended should you as the surgical critical care provider have a comment about their reconstruction or perhaps how they should approach it or the management of immunosuppressive medications. So this kind of um, buy-in for acute care surgery and all of its different pieces to be well-respected has not yet arrived in every center. The um, So it sounds like just from my perspective, that it sounds like it's great training for someone if they did a acute care, surgical critical care fellowship, they go out to somewhere more rural, and they have a tremendous skill set. It also sounds like in a university setting, the politics of the multiple hats that that person is capable of wearing needs to be handled, I would say, delicately in order not to have it be disruptive, to have this person really feel like they're being integrated into the institution. Is that those 
reasonable statements? Um, those are reasonable statements. People have used the term uh, or identified that some acute care surgeons feel like they are second-class surgeons by comparison. Uh, salary lines are often not commensurate with what, with what uh, one of the specialized general surgeons might make, despite the fact that you're in the hospital. You do work the next day most commonly, so you're working 36-hour shifts, and it's a high-stress environment, but you may not be paid in a commensurate fashion. So those, those are all very problematic issues. So you must have some thoughts about how to, I mean, I, I would imagine you would have thoughts to try and make this better. What, what are some of those thoughts? You need to be paid for the fact that you're in-house. Call stipends for acute care surgeons occur less than a third of the time throughout the, the U.S., that needs to be 100% of the time. And we have not taken into account what this does in terms of academic productivity. Right. Because if you're doing this at one of these large centers, most people are there for an academic career. Right. If you spend your time on call, up all night, working the next day, uh, as you get older, and uh, I'm certainly suffering from that, I'm really exhausted that next night, and I'm still slow the next day, too. So that is a problem if you're a junior faculty member trying to find the time and the energy to establish yourself right, right, and right. establish your career. Right. Hmm. And so, um, but, um, well, why don't we try and end on some sort of an optimistic note about, about this as a way to improve quality and, and uh, improve the field of trauma-critical care for this practicing surgeon. It does sound like it solves some problems, though, at, at some big university centers that are looking for uh, a way uh, to improve their surgical quality, right? It is clearly able to do the n a number of things. You'll operate more. You will have more patience. The throughput, uh, if you've resourced your service well, is better than before with shorter uh, hospital lengths of stay, shorter ICU lengths of stay, fewer ventilator days, uh, perhaps fewer infections. Certainly the patients being taken care of in a consistent fashion appear to be happier. There's better surgeon satisfaction that's documented with the ability to do general surgery. And, and it sounds like it's one of those areas, just thinking back to the hospitals movement that kind of took off on its own, where the academic... Um, the academic acute care surgeon might be able to integrate their fellowship into outcomes, degrees, and things like that that would allow them to do the kinds of things that you pointed out, look backwards and see, are we improving outcomes? Things like that, right? You agree? Uh, you could do that if you added another year. Right, but I meant you would invest that as a way of saying long-term career, uh, academic productivity. Those are the kinds of things that people do. Uh, you, you certainly could do that. That's not yet been done. I see. Uh, but acute care surgery does some other important things. It does unload the elective general surgeons. Right. It helps unload the emergency department by decreasing ED length of stay. You have a readily available surgeon. You're not waiting to go up the food chain uh, to get the surgical decision, admit, not admit. And you're having that sick patient be able to be evaluated on scene by a surgeon who can lay the hands on their belly or whatever other part needs to be evaluated in a very rapid fashion. So from that aspect, it's a vast improvement uh, for emergency departments and quality and timeliness of care in that kind of a setting. And, and the specific issue you brought up, actually, I've seen already at my institution where there's a surgery residency and where 
an attending surgeon may be operating and they're one of their own patients is having some trouble and instead of waiting until that surgeon can come out of the OR to see their patient it there's already been full buy-in to say you know the acute care surgery attending is working with the surgical chief resident and making a decision and doing what needs to be done is that that's what you're referring to that's in large part but if you are the emergency medicine doctor and you have a patient whose belly you believe uh, indicates a, an intra-abdominal emergency it is very attractive to pick up the phone, call the surgeon who you know is in-house and say, I need you to come down and look at this patient now, rather than calling the resident, having the resident call the chief resident, the chief resident comes and looks and then calls the attending who's at home, who then may want more information. It's very easy for the surgeon who's in-house, on scene, right there, to be part and parcel of that decision up front without needing to wait for lots of other data to come back in. So those are great things from a hospital perspective and from a patient care perspective that acute care surgery, by parking that person there, can do. What is coming down the pike, I think, based upon the, the public and insurance and government need and desire for 24-7 quality care, not just in the emergency department but also in the ICU, is the emplacement of a second in-house attending in these busy centers, and that person is purely dedicated to delivery of critical care in a quality fashion, just like the acute care surgeon is doing it for the trauma and emergency general surgery patient. Great. Well, Dr. Kaplan, this is fantastic. I, I was hoping that this would be this good, and it was. I'm very grateful for you to be with us today. We've been speaking today with Dr. Lewis J. Kaplan, MD, FCCM. He's an associate professor of surgery at the Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut, and we've been discussing the important topic of acute care surgery. It is a new field. It is related to critical care, and I look forward to doing one a year or so from now with you to find out where this is all headed. Thank you so much for being with us today. It'd be my pleasure. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over four years of our archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Sibel. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD of CCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.